Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Elizabeth Eva Leach about medieval sex lives, the sounds of courtly intimacy on the Francophone borders. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's my pleasure. This uh, has both got a wonderful title um, and is a fascinating uh, sort of academic book, but also, um, and this is a bit of a cliche, so I, I apologise, it's kind of a bit of a sort of detective story, uh, I, I think, as, as well, about uh, a fascinating um, folio manuscript uh, collection. Um, and I'm interested to start off with where the idea for the book uh, came from, really, and, and, and how you're sort of I guess, kind of digging around in in the archive gave rise rise to the book. Yeah, so I'd actually been working on slightly later repertoire on the composer Guillaume de Machaut, who is 1300 to 1377. Um, And I was looking for a new project, having published a book on him. And I was kind of interested, I got sent some books to review where the books were editions of various parts of this manuscript that is known under the shelf mark of Douse 308. And they had lots of lyrics in there, lots of songs, no musical notation, but all of the songs um, were arranged in genre subsections, including some genres like the ballets and the chanson, which I hadn't really come across before. And this is really from the period immediately before the stuff I'd been working on. So this is the immediate heritage um, of Guillaume de Machaut. Um, And so I was just curious about these unfamiliar relatively unfamiliar genres. Um, And there is a bit of a gap in the sources for music around 1300. So, of course, we've got this unnotated book. There's no musical notation in it, but it's quite clearly a pointer to musical practices. And that's kind of what we have to do at this point. We have to be a bit creative as musicologists to look at unnotated sources to see what they can tell us about music. And interestingly, the manuscript itself, Dow's 308, was local to me. it's in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, where I'm based and, and, and where I live. Um, and I had a sabbatical in 2013, just after I'd done all of these reviews of various um, editions of these lyrics that had been in this manuscript. And I unfortunately broke a bone in my foot and ended up on crutches, not able to get into the libraries or do anything. It was sort of like a prototype for lockdown, really. Um, And during that period, all I could really do was put together a grant application. So I wrote a grant application to the Leverhulme Trust, who very kindly indeed funded um, the work for this book. I had three years looking at the Dow 308 manuscript, only to find out that it wasn't exactly the manuscript that I thought it was. I thought it was a whole manuscript that was all put together in this sort of holistic way. And I was going to write a biography of the manuscript. And it wasn't like that. There's, it's got a lot of different things in it, and a lot of different contents. It's a composite manuscript, but there's a core to it. And the core is these um, eight genre subsections of over 500 songs and um, an interesting poem about a tournament called the Tournament at Chauvency. If that's a bit about the content, um, I wonder if you could set it in the context of, of both its geography and its time. <laughs> Yes. So the current state of the manuscript, uh, we think it was bound together uh, with its contents as they currently are um, uh, in the 15th century. But the contents themselves were probably put together in the very early 14th century, I think around about 1313. And it's clear that some of the contents that are there 
now uh, were part of a different manuscript. There's another bit of it that's in the uh, British Library, for example. The version that we've got, and the reason it's called Douse 308, um, is that Francis Douse was an early 19th century collector. He had actually ended up getting a massive bequest from a sculptor that he knew in 1823. And he bought all sorts of things. He was very interested in manuscripts that had nice pictures. And this has got lots of nice illuminations in it. And when he died um, in, I think, the 1830s, he left his books to the body and including 420 manuscripts, of which this is number 308. Um, it's a parchment manuscript. And um, the American scholar Nancy Freeman Regalado said it's a complete kit of secular chivalry. Well, it is in the state that it's in now. But art historian Alison Stones has really suggested that it is a sort of things that are put together that didn't originally sit together. So how it looks at the moment, it's got a, a long narrow, a, a long po- poem called The Vows of the Peacock, which is part of the late uh, Alexander cycle about Alexander the Great. It's got um, a work, a prose work by um, Richard de Forneval called The Bestiary of Love, which is a sort of weird mashup of a bestiary and um, a love letter. And then it's got these contents, which we think are the only things which were definitely in the original ordering, which is the tournament at Chauvency, which is a versified account of a real tournament that actually took place. And I'll probably talk more about that later. Um, And then it's got these over 500 songs arranged in their eight genre subsections. After that, it's got a tournament, something called the Tournament of Antichrist by Huon de Marie. And just before that, there's a sort of single page from another work, the rest of which is in that British Library manuscript, which also has an apocalypse um, work in it as well. So the current thing is a composite, but the central bit and the bit that I became increasingly interested in about which this book is is talking are the songs and the tournament at Chauvency. One of the things you mentioned there was this kind of idea of uh, there being a sort of a guide or a, did you call it a kind of a kit for a love at court? Um, and this conception of courtly love um, is, is really crucial um, to the book and, and to your analysis. And actually, you know, it, it's a sort of a topic, a subject that various um, writers from a lot of different um, areas and and different approaches have written about. And I wonder if you could kind of unpack Courtly Love for me, partially because it obviously, you know, animates um, the the book's analysis, but also I I think it's, again, a really important um, kind of bit of context setting um, for the work you've been doing. Yeah, sure. I mean, Courtly Love, you know, it's it's a lot of different things. It's a 19th century invention for a start. So Gaston Paris uh, coined the phrase amour courtois um, in 1883. And he was really looking at the what he saw as a new way of people relating to one another erotically um, in Chrétien de Troyes' uh, Chevalier de la Charette. Um, that term then got translated into English and became quite central to a book by C.S. Lewis, um, where he really said it was actually a real medieval thing. He outlined four components of it, which were humility, courtesy, adultery, and the religion of love. And then subsequent to that, the scholars really argued about it and kind of rejected it as a, as a term. Lots of people said it's sort of anachronistic or it was mistranslated or it was a bad form of labelling. And particularly as scholarly fashions changed and people weren't really so interested in how these literary works related to real life or to historical episodes or events. Um, 
essentially as people were sort of really treating works in a more structuralist uh, way, they sort of didn't like the sort of sociological um, framing of courtly love. Um, and they sort of really tried to stop people using it. And so people would use a work around like Finamour or <laughs> or something else. They would just sort of talk about specific genres. I'm actually not using it to mean courtly love in the sense of love which is very much codified and defined. I use it much more to think about what love in its broadest sense might mean at the court. Um, and that's the court in its broadest sense as well. I mean, actually, in some senses, courtly love tropes are the sorts of things that keep cropping up in courtly love uh, literature and courtly love poetry are an enduring cultural phenomenon, even today. Um, I heard recently a, a podcast, uh, it's one of the episodes from Not Just the Tudors that they originally put out in, 20, in 2021, but they actually just re-released over Christmas. And in it, Sarah Griswold was talking about how the Tudors reenacted these roles of the devoted lover and the capricious mistress and, you know, that they were sort of taking the romances of medieval literature and turning them into a more um, sort of historical practice. And that this then got rediscovered in the Romantic period in the 19th century, um, and it's filtered right through into pop songs and into popular culture more broadly. And I think that's true. I think a lot of the tropes that are in these um, pieces of literature are still with us. That doesn't mean they're the same, and it doesn't mean they have the same kinds of resonance. Yeah, it, it, it's particularly tricky, isn't it, trying to sort of reconstruct um, the, the uses of um, practices around music. And, and one of the things I, I think the book does really well is um, it's quite sort of open and um, foregrounds it, it, its use of things like contemporary theory and, and draws from other areas of um, both scholarly um, and, and kind of cultural practice. And, and we'll talk a bit about that later, actually, in in, in, in when we get into the later sections of the book, that the final kind of bit of context setting is this question about, so where does music fit in here? And, and again, you've sort of touched on this already um, in, in terms of how these um, sort of practices were both constructed then and also reinterpreted, reimagined, fantasized at various other historical points. But yeah, what, what's going on with, with, with music's role um, at court and I guess kind of more broadly in the, um, sexual and cultural scripts of court too. Yeah, so I mean, this relates to the um, the methodological thing that I hit upon in the end to use to try and understand how these songs had remained current for such a long time. So, the songs that are in Dar 308 um, go back a couple of hundred years. So, there's songs in there from the late 12th century, um, and you know, why did why was courtly love such a thing for such a long period of time? Was it, why, why did it persist in being useful and interesting to people? And I think part of that is to do with the sorts of um, sexual scripts that it contains, but part of it is also to do with the fact that it is sung. Um, and singing and music making have a particular kind of 
power over people. Um, most people who have any kind of feeling for music today could relate to that idea that we we are emotionally affected by music. We're also able to inscribe text quite well in our memories because of it being sung. So music is this very, very good link to memory. Um, modern, modern psychological studies have shown that that, that seems to be the case. Um, which meant that it could mediate between the three different levels of sexual scripting, uh, which uh, which I was using methodologically. So this is thinking about a broad cultural script that everyone knows about, so a sort of communal script that's just out there, um, then to sort of more interpersonal scripts. So we see this happening um, in some of the musical games that are happening in the tournament at Chauvency where people are exchanging little musical tags with one another in a sort of, not quite like a rap battle, but that kind of um, musical um, competition or musical game. Um, and then also because it's, it, it features in memory, you can remember, you can recollect music, you can think about music, or you can think about the words that were set to a piece of music that you know really well, or a little a little refrain, a little um, piece of uh, melody that you might know that has text. And those things can perhaps be used intrapsychically for your own personal fantasy life. And you know, part of the understanding that I had of how sexuality functions is to do with the importance of individual fantasy. But that individual fantasy is not based on nothing. It's based on interpersonal and broadly more cultural uh, scripts that are being offered by the the, the cultural um, products that people are uh, participating in. And what sort of, um, we'd call them erotic scripts, are, are we talking about here? I wonder if you can give some examples from, um, I guess, uh, some of the um, sort of works earlier on. Um, in, in, in 308 uh, before we get into the more, I suppose, kind of formal uh, things around the tournament uh, a bit later. Yeah, so the sort of most prestigious genre of uh, courtly song and the genre that is copied in the first subsection, there's uh, just over 90 of these songs in there, is called the Grand Chant. So this is the, the high style song. In this, you've typically got a male je, a male first person um, lyric subject who is sort of addressing his lady or talking about her and sometimes doing both. Um, often he's sort of saying how much he's suffering, saying that he's dying for his love of the lady. Um, people have already talked extensively about the masochistic nature of courtly love in that regard. You know, he's enjoying the pain that comes from love because it comes from his lady. But I wanted to also see other possibilities there. Is there a sense in which he as the only speaking subject in the song is sort of kind of guilt tripping the listening lady by, you know, making it clear that she is doing this thing to him. Um, and is he sort of forcing her to take pity on him? And in what sense does that work in a real life performance situation where it might not just be one lady who's listening to this, but there might be a whole court of mixed lords and ladies together 
um, and who's identifying with who I wanted to sort of think through that kind of um, situation. So really to see these things as much more performative, I think, than they had been viewed before. The Grand Chant have within them a few Marian chansons, and I was interested in looking at those. They have been um, talked about as a way of sort of seeing an analogical or allegorical link between the remote courtly lady love object and the Virgin Mary, who's the typical dedicatee of these songs. Um, But I just wondered whether there was something also there that was almost a sort of, um, I used the phrase asexual erotics, um, thinking about a a form of eroticism that is in some sense asexual um, and therefore gave certain uh, people with certain sexual proclivities some kind of sexual script. So um, that then relates to the third sort of thing, which has very similar performing um, type to the Grand Chant and the Marian songs, which is these things called Sot Chansons, which are quite a rare kind of chanson, and there's quite a few of them in this in this manuscript. And... As far as we can tell, we don't have many surviving melodies. In fact, no surviving melodies for these. One of them seems to be a contrafact with um, a grand chant, so we might be able to posit a melody for that. Um, and the, what that means is that, you know, musically, there's no difference between a sot chanson and a grand chant. But in terms of the text, the sot chanson it literally means a foolish song or a drunken song. Um, those are songs which are incredibly... Um, obscene or you know they can be things like I love my lady and I love her shit because it comes from my lady so there's a sense in which there's um, you know bodily functions feature sexual functions feature sometimes they're sort of clearly quite odd there's one in which he praises his lady and talks about all her physical features in a way you might expect in a grand chant but it's clear that the physical features being described mean that his lady is actually a cow like literally the animal, the cow. Um, and um, people have talked about the Sotte Chanson as parodic, um, as a way of sort of being the flip side of the Grand Chant. And I think that's definitely true. But I wanted to go again, I wanted to broaden out and see, is there a, a legitimate sexual identification that people can have here? You know, are there in fact various well-attested paraphilias that are being explored here that certain people listening to these songs would have found genuinely um, enticing, arousing, fantasy material, not just funny, not just sending up the Grand Chant, but actually giving access to various kinds of what we might today see as minority sexual practices. On that, I wonder if we we might jump forward to later in the book and maybe we'll close by talking about the tournament later on in the book i i think you um sort of engage more explicitly with sort of contemporary or, or modern theories of sexuality and, and there's a lot of discussion of um kind of theater and, and, and performance as well um and just thinking of sort of crystallizing this into a, a question you, you can actually answer could, could you maybe introduce um the music the the pastorelles that are in in the later part of 308 but but then uh, perhaps kind of comment on how you're bringing in um, ideas about sexuality and, and ideas about performance too. 
Yeah, so, I mean, what is a pastoral? It's one of those questions uh, that is difficult to answer. I think the pastoral has been very much defined circularly based on the positing of a classic type of pastoral that is really current later than the period that I'm talking about. In this period, I think we have to take seriously the fact that there is a pastoral subsection that's labelled here and includes a lot of songs in it that we wouldn't normally normally put in that um, pastoral category. So, if I, the so the ca- pastoral category that people can uh, can relate to and that is normally posited is. Um, Essentially, a knight is out on his way in the countryside. He encounters a shepherdess and dot, dot, dot. He approaches her, propositions her. She might laugh at him, run away. She might say yes. She might say no. He might rape her. Um, Her boyfriend, Robin, might appear from the bushes and clock the knight on the head with a club. There's all sorts of ways it can pan out. So it's a sort of general um, scene that is set up. Um, and then the way, the way it might play out is, is differs from, from pastoral to pastoral. So that's the classic type. And there's a sort of subtype in which the knight instead just watches um, voyeuristically peasants having fun, either in a larger group doing dancing and singing or in a, uh, a couple who are having an argument or having or, or otherwise engaged but actually in in there are loads of other kinds of things in that pastoral subsection that are also scenes of a kind so there's one in which a nun and a monk um, get together so the monk sort of comes along and rescues the nun from the nunnery and they run off together there's a various mother-daughter exchanges and there are lots of these um, so, so-called mar-marié songs, this, uh, the song of the ill-wed wife. So it's usually a wife lamenting the fact that, you know, why does my husband beat me when all I'm doing is lying naked with my lover and he's just an idiot, my husband, and I need to punish him by just going and seeing my lover and I'm going to get naked with my lover because it will teach my husband not to beat me. Um so there's a lot of sort of difficult issues here. So there's lots of sexual violence, rape, domestic violence. Um, but I wanted, and, you know, modern scholars have very much drawn on uh, feminist theory for talking about um, these things. And there's some very good stuff there from feminist uh, theorists who were really writing against some of the earlier scholarly approaches in the 19th century and the early 20th century where people had found these pastorels sort of fun and amusing and and, and charming um, when it, clearly they're sort of in one sense not at all charming but there was just something in the in the tournament at Chauvency that gave me pause where there is a pastoral type um, dance that is done uh, with a scene with a shepherd and a shepherdess where it turns out that the person who is dancing the part of the shepherd is revealed to be, in fact, a noble woman. And so what you've got is two noble women playing at being shepherd and shepherdess, which I think then gives a number of different kinds of identifications and makes it seem much more clearly um, a, a, a fantasy possibility and particularly a fantasy possibility for women. I'm not, of course, not excluding the interpretations that are already out there but I just wanted to broaden out from those uh, to to think about the way that gender and role play playing with gender playing with the different roles might be suggested by the um, that particular scene of the Robadell dance in in the tournament Chauvency and that the, the inclusion of certain kinds of things um, 
in the pastoral subsection could show how that might be done. So one of the pieces that I talk about briefly is a song that's actually quite well known because it's been widely recorded by modern um, groups, which is a song called Pourquoi me bat mes maris, Why Does My Husband Beat Me? And it's normally seen as this mal marié song, but I think it does also allow someone to stage a persona in which it's possible to read um, the the je, the speaking woman, as um, a, a sort of BDSM brat. So this sort of idea of a sub kind of asking for it in this bratish way. And I actually found there was quite a lot of interesting secondary literature, um, often from sociologists, um, but also from ethnographers, um, studying BDSM scenes and BDSM subcultures in various parts of the world. Um, and that really was quite useful. Um, additional stuff that I found useful was um, stuff on theatre and stuff also on live action role playing. Um, so anything really where people are doing a sort of scene and exploring that sort of actually quite that edge play or that edgy play between reality and 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 play acting, but also play acting things which are on the edge of acceptability or even perhaps over that edge as a way of um, sort of enjoying the frisson of power, of transgression, of power play, that kind of thing. I've been to the tournament several times um, and there you give an example of, of one, um, I guess, kind of part of, of, of music within it. Um, What's going on in, in terms of, and, and again, you've you said a couple of times that, you know, a real event, but also this is a kind of, I suppose, sort of literary construction within 308. Um, I wonder if you could kind of introduce it, but also give a sense of, of why music matters and, and I guess why it's the kind of centrepiece to the book too. Yeah, so, I mean, this this poem is really quite interesting it is supposedly of a real event that happened in 1284 at a place called chevancy le chateau which still exists um there's a really good translation of this so if people are interested you should look out the nigel bryant translation of the tournament of chevancy which was published in 2020 with boydell and brewer um it is as well as the details of the tournament there's a sort of opening frame in which the author meets a nobleman from Alsace in a forest and has this funny conversation with him because he's a he's a German speaker who's trying to speak French. And it's actually the first um, depiction of a German speaking French that we have in French literature. And, you know, he gets, he conjugates the verbs wrongly, he gets the wrong tenses, he gets the word order wrong. He does a lot of funny stuff in, in his French. So it's clearly quite a comic um poem and then we have people coming from all over they all what he tells this uh, um alsatian nobleman um is that there's going to be a tournament and he should bring all his guys from alsace over for this tournament and indeed they all arrive on the first of october at this castle um at chauvency and um there's a sort of evening sunday evening uh, food and drink and then monday and tuesday they have a whole series of jousts on Wednesday, there's a bit of a rest day because they need to plan the Thursday melee fight. So these are really the two types of tournament activity that we would have in this period. Um, and this is on the borderlands between um, the French uh, kingdoms and um, the empire. So this is sort of right in Lotharingia, in the sort of uh, in the area around Metz. 
Um, and so we've got people who are coming from the empire. We've got people who are coming from Flanders. We've got people who are coming from France. We've got people who are coming from sort of other small local things. It's a real sort of meeting point of uh, these nobles. And supposedly all of these people are real people. They're not only named, but we get details of their heraldry, which are depicted in the in the miniatures. Um, and they can all pretty much be identified. Uh, all the people who work on heraldry use this as one of the major sources of, of thinking about people's heraldry in this period. But unusually, music making and conversation are also described by the poem as well. And the poem itself is sort of very oral. A lot of it's direct speech. It's very sort of vocal. Um, the music that is described is mainly these things which are called refrains. So they're these little emotionally charged musical phrases, usually a couplet of poetry with a simple tune or a sort of lick that that would be very memorable and would be easy for people to sing. They're often singing them communally and they sing them in particular kinds of context. So when they're going to the field and when they're coming home from the field, the men and the women sort of tend to take each other by the hand and, and sing these refrains. But then there are a couple of more set piece uh, musical things that happen in the evening. One of them I've already talked about with this Robberdale dance where the two noble women dress as a shepherd and a shepherdess. But there's also something called the Garland Game, which happens on the Thursday evenings. It's the sort of last thing that they do um, before they leave on the Friday. Um, and the Garland Game is that competitive refrain exchange between actually a minstrel and the most senior noble woman who is there. Um, but that's not the only thing we get. We get sort of lots of shouting and crying and people's battle cries as they go into the melee. Um, the, we also get descriptions of them singing the mass every day. Every day starts with the mass before they go to the field. Um, so there's a lot of musical stuff going on and it's, it has a level of very similitude um, and historical record keeping obviously it's not a documentary it is a versification of of an event and in fact the author talks about how this event is com commissioned uh, he has his own patron that he goes to who and his patron says please will you put this into a poem and and have it so i can keep it and i think it is something which was designed as a record um not a document but definitely a record that is meant to be uh realistic if not um entirely uh, real so that's that's why I think it's important um, and it just was the case that many many of the sorts of musical activities that are described in the tournament at Chauvency relate to the genres of songs which are collected in the song collection that follows it so the fact that these two things were designed to go in a manuscript together I think again it's it's part of a, a sort of set of materials that people can use I mean one thing that comes out from both our conversation, but but also from the book, is the possibility of a lot more uh, in in three hundred eight. And, and you've talked quite a bit about sort of, I guess, differentiating between the parts that are slightly older, the parts that relate um, to one and each each other most sort of closely. And and it really prompts the question of having done such a fascinating and and, and really. I think a book that's full of, of possibilities. Where are you going next, both in terms of the kind of broader agenda, but also in, in terms of thinking about specific scholarship on, um, on 308? 
Yeah, well, I'm actually just finishing a book on the Bestiary of Love, Richard de Fourneval's Bestiary of Love, which is a mid-13th century prose text that is in Dar 308 in its current state, but I don't think was necessarily, or we don't know whether it was bound with the other contents originally. Um, this is a, a work that, that mixes a bestiary, which is normally something which is really about showing God's work in the world by discussing the natures of beasts, and it it's mixed that mixes that in with a love letter in which he's writing to his lady who's clearly turned him down and saying, please, 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 can you reconsider? Because I definitely, you know, still love you. Um, it's actually an incredibly weird and sophisticated uh, mashup of these two things, because the bestiary normally has this sort of Christological or sort of allegorical but theological side to it and all of that is kind of taken out here and instead we get this sort of unreliable first person speaker and it's in prose but it seems very lyric in its sort of format but this first person speaker is trying to appropriate scholastic discourse it starts with a um, a quotation from Aristotle from the metaphysics in French which it hadn't been translated into French in this period um, but it, it starts with that and he tries to bend this scholastic discourse um, into his you know, as a way of supporting his wish to get inside the head of his beloved and of course getting inside her head is sort of a, a prelude to getting inside uh, her knickers essentially if people wore knickers in the middle ages which I don't think they did but you get the point point. Um, I'm writing co-writing this in fact with French literature scholar Jonathan Morton and he's written about a similar appropriation of philosophical ideas in the much better known and more widely disseminated Romain de la Rose um, from the later 13th century and we actually think this that the Romain de la Rose was really influenced by Richard de Fourneval's Bestiary of Love. We're going to make some sort of large claims there. So my work on the Bestiary of Love wasn't wasted because I'm able to sort of hive that off into a different book. Um, the Bestiary of Love is actually very widely copied and we're taking the manuscripts of it, of which there are about 20-something, um, and they're often heavily illustrated. We're taking them as a sort of record of the performance of the work. So again, I'm thinking about it being performative, about it being read aloud and also about it being sort of semi-staged in some kind of way I mean it's, it's not a theatre piece but it is a piece where the the first person nature of the work means that the person who would be reading it to the noble people who are listening to it in the court situation and um, that person is essentially inhabiting that weird guy who is desperate to convince his lady that she should you know be like um a pelican and peck her breast open and let him feed on her blood because because um so i'm sort of trying again to imagine how this particular work had relevance to people's real lives to people's and when i say real lives their real lives include their fantasy lives and it, it's sort of seeing the fantasy and sexual scripting possibilities of uh, of medieval French literature more broadly, not just song culture, but um, but other kinds of literature too, I think is something I would want to pursue a little bit more. Um, the Bestiary of Love, whilst being a prose work, does actually quote some troubadour songs and has a sort of it's framed as being anti-song. He says, I, I sent you all my best songs and you still turn me down. So now I'm not going to sing anymore. I'm going to 
like the cockerel, I'm going to crow loudly. Um, and that's his way of saying he's going to write in prose. So it's framed as being anti-song, but it's actually got a lot of noises and sounds. And a lot of the animals obviously are making their own particular songs. And I guess early next year for that book? Yes, I hope so. We're, we're intending to get the final, final draft off to the press. We're contracted with, again, with Cornell University Press. Um, and that's, uh, we've, we've told them we're going to get it to them by the end of February. So I would hope that would mean that we would indeed see it appear early next year.